Hello and welcome to the second episode of Too Long Don't Listen, a spin-off of a spin-off I think it's ultimately become, where I shall Peter much take a deeper dive into a particular piece of media that has caught my eye or taken my attention or that I want to have a chat about really um, and I want to spare Will, who's obviously my normal lieutenant uh, when it comes to the weekly watch list podcast, uh, the, the boredom I think it is more than anything else of having to sit next to me as I, um, you know, rabbit on probably half an hour or so about something he's got absolutely no interest in um so i thought i'd just spare him that uh for a second time before we record again because if i spoke about this movie and the last movie no time to die in our next episode of the weekly watch list um he'd probably have to stay the night uh but today i'll be talking about wes anderson and specifically his latest movie the french dispatch or dispatch french dispatch french dispatch it's not important how you want to say it. Um, I've been such a fan of Wes Anderson's work for so long, uh, ever since the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, and I mentioned in the episode in which I spoke about No Time to Die, about how a new James Bond film you know, creates a rare kind of excitement or buzz on the cinema calendar. It kind of turns everyone's heads and people really look forward to that as an event. It is a rare type of event. And I feel the exact same way about a new Wes Anderson film, whenever he's got a new picture on the horizon... Um, he is a filmmaker, perhaps more than any other filmmaker, to be honest, um, that I'll clear the calendar and I'll make sure at the earliest opportunity or convenience I can go and see whatever his latest movie is. And, and this was absolutely no different in this case. Um, you know, I've, I've loved all of his movies, um, some more than others, obviously, as, as does happen if you like a band or a filmmaker or an actor. I loved his Amex ad, which is it's just quintessential Anderson um, he did a short film for Prada, I think, in 2013 called uh, Castello Cavalcanti, which was just absolutely outstanding. So fantastic. A seven and a half minute snapshot of exactly the filmmaker he'd become to that point, was building to that point. And then really interestingly, that he would actually evolve beyond, you know, in the films that have followed. So that started with uh, 2014's The Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, continued uh, somewhat with... Um, uh, Isle of Dogs, which was the stop-motion animated uh, film in 2018, and it obviously continues with The French Dispatch, which is being released widely uh, in Australia next Thursday, the 9th of December. Um, it's the 10th film by Wes Anderson, uh, his first since 2018, uh, and that stop-motion masterpiece, Isle of Dogs, uh, and his first live-action feature since 2014's uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. And one of the reasons I wanted to speak about Wes Anderson, you know, more than just my excitement for him as a filmmaker and his latest film, is because he's such a unique figure in filmmaking. I almost actually said Hollywood, but he's so unique, especially these days, that he should actually exist outside of the Hollywood umbrella. His films have very much become a celebration of the art form of filmmaking, each of which is so carefully curated. You watch his movies if you're familiar with his work. They've all got this very particular rhythm and patter to them that is truly unlike any other filmmaker. The way they look, the way they feel, the way they're performed, uh, the way they're shot, the way they're edited, the production design, and we're going to talk about all of that and um, so many of the reasons why I love the film um, shortly. Um I suppose basically we'll do the plot. The plot is obviously important in terms of describing the film without giving anything away. Not that this film is so spoiler-heavy, I suppose, but um, just in terms of a bit of an overview of how the film plays out and the key beats and features. 
Uh, the French Dispatch is a love letter to uh, periodical magazines, think the New Yorker, uh, which can create celebrities of their contributors. Um, the French Dispatch uses its writers as narrators to present four distinct stories or episodes that tell the outside world about the small French town of Ennui. Uh, and the stories here are collated as if they're an issue of the magazine, which, following the death of the editor, who's played by uh, Anderson's most frequent collaborator, Bill Murray, just so happens to be its last. The anthology series plays out with Owen Wilson's uh, Sazerac, setting the scene and introducing the town with a travelogue-like prologue. Tilda Swinton's Berenson then takes us inside the local jail and the mind of an artist, his muse, and an incarcerated collector's obsession with writing his new find to great wealth. Frances McDormand's Cremence finds herself in the middle of a student revolution on the streets of Ennui, cozying up to its young leader, rewriting his manifesto, and creating division and perhaps even a little bit of direction within the movement from the ground level. And then lastly, Jeffrey Wright's uh, Roebuck Wright um, and his fantastic story of the night his dinner with the police commissioner became a tense hostage situation involving local mobsters, the commissioner's son, an accountant, and with the help of a legendary chef and local police lieutenant Nescafier, ultimately the key to the resolution. It is ludicrous, it's fanciful, it's fantastic. It is Wes Anderson to an absolute T. It's concepts that are hat-on-a-hat type setups, um, which are sometimes plotted to excess, only to exist seamlessly within the heightened nonsensical world and framework that Anderson creates and is and is his, as his one would, as Kingy might say if he was um, reviewing the film. You know, it is quirky, it is abstract, it is precise, and it is all it is all taking place in this in this, which we're going to talk about the setting, but taking place in this vision of a French town that is sort of. It's like a memory of what Paris might have been, but you know it's not. And it's this extraordinary, like I said, abstract, but quite vivid, um, quite remarkable dream of a place, and it is absolutely fantastic. Did I like the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was always going to. Like, in fairness, when I sit down to watch a Wes Anderson film, I'm, I'm always I'm always going to like most of the movie. Um Sometimes the plot is actually irrelevant in, in these movies a lot of the time. You, you kind of watch them and think what's playing out is actually kind of less important as to how it plays out, how it looks, what your relationship is with what's happening on the screen, how much you can appreciate all the moving parts that are coming together you know, to create um, this particular film. And, and with that in mind, you know, as much as I loved what Isle of Dogs achieved – and it is a ridiculous achievement, make absolutely no mistake. The film itself didn't quite land for me. I called it a masterpiece off the top um, in the opener because, well, because what saved it? I'm just trying to sort of, I don't want to say, what what saved the movie was just the pure artistry of bringing it to screen. Like, it is a breathtaking technical achievement, stop motion, the amount of detail in every single shot. It, it is phenomenal. And very, very few people have the technical qualities, let alone the patience, to make a film like that. And that it exists at all, and it exists so flawlessly constructed, is an absolute achievement. Um, Anderson himself is a past master of a kind of specificity that either gets into your blood or it leaves you a bit confused and unable to connect with the film. And by that, I mean you're either utterly convinced 
by his methods and almost a, a zealot for him, you know, and them, or you're completely immune to them and their charm and you just don't get them. I think that there's no nowhere really in between. And like I'm absolutely the former. If you couldn't guess already, I just I just can't wait to see every time the lights go down, every time, you know, Indian Paintbrush, his, his production company, every time that comes up, I just can't wait to see what he's added. You know, the, a theme of this sort of chat about the film is going to be evolution of style, evolution of technique, evolution of competencies. And with every passing film, he just becomes more confident. He becomes more competent. He becomes more at ease with giving his fans not just what they've come to expect, but something a bit new and a, and a twist to it and something that they can leave the cinema fully appreciating, not just for the 10th time, but for the first time. And a lot of that is about how he, he pulls all of those elements together in a new or exciting way, a unique way, a way you haven't seen before or for a while, or in a way that you've seen coming now for, you know, might be 20 years, but you kind of see this culmination of this journey and, and there's this moment that harkens back to that or this or this particular segment from another film. So he is, like I said, you know, one of a kind in the filmmaking world just at the moment and, and that is part of the reason I personally, I don't think he gets enough credit for the service he does film. You know, I'm obviously a devotee of his, but he just creates art that is so unique to its creator, you know, or inventors, to be honest, it's creators because um, he's such a collaborative filmmaker and ultimately, I suppose it deserves to be seen and appreciated probably more than it is. His films do quite well and they do well enough for him to continue making films, which is you know, obviously the aim. But for somebody in, in this day and age who, like in a lot of ways, carries the torch for a way you know, films used to be made, I think that's so important. In, in today's pretty bland, pretty homogenised Hollywood system where nothing is new, Films are directed you know, largely in previews. Big set pieces are bland. Nothing has a standout style or character or feel. This guy provides that. He's one of very, very few filmmakers who almost directs films entirely in his style. There's no compromises. There's no diluting of that style. Everything comes to the screen exactly as he envisaged it. And for a visual medium, that is so important. How do you perceive something on the page and then what does it look like when it's up on the screen? I can't imagine there's too much of a deviation when it comes to what Anderson, he sits down with uh, Roman Coppola or Jason Schwartzman and people he's written with in the past and, and it has written with for some time and they envisage what it looks like and what the world looks like and the characters and how they interact and the staging and the blocking and the camera moves and I can imagine it being pretty much spot on when they eventually see the film yeah that's exactly how I saw it and for someone like I said who just continues to evolve continues to improve continues to refine his own style I just think it needs to be celebrated and look I think what I don't want to sound like a pretentious dickhead because filmmaking is like the purest collaborative artistic endeavour there is, and particularly at that level, it's the best of the best, you know, rubbing shoulders with each other to bring a bunch of words on a piece of paper to the screen, to the audience sitting in the dark. And there's so much that can go wrong in that process. It only has to be off by a little bit for it to not work at all. 
you know, it's production design, the set design, lighting, cinematography, the musical score, the writing, the performance of the actors, the editing, you know, after the fact to bring it all together, the list goes on. And what Anderson does flawlessly, perhaps better, more uniquely, I use the word again, than anyone else, is massage that all together so brilliantly, so flawlessly, to just have its own just personal style, to have its own look and feel. And when so, so, so many films just feel the same, sound the same, look the same, play out the same, end the same, to have somebody who's out there pushing the envelope and giving us something new and different and fun and fresh it should absolutely be um, celebrated. So it's sort of what we're kind of doing here, I suppose, in a, in a roundabout kind of way, talking about the movie. Um, apart from also renaming this uh, particular bonus episode of the Weekly Watch List about 15 minutes after I published the No Time to Die episode, um, Too Long, Don't Listen, uh, I've also decided, in terms of pros and cons, I may as well just steal the chicken salad, chicken shit uh, headings that we do on the Prendercast. That makes perfect sense. It's consistent. Uh, it is part of our style. Um, chicken salads, obviously, being big thumbs up, pros. Uh, I love the episodic style of the storytelling. It allowed Anderson to cut his film up into three stories, four, including the prologue, which is very important in establishing uh, the setting of Ennui and introducing the audience to this place, to this time. Um it's not its own story. It doesn't tell a narrative as such, but it is a very important part of the film. Um, I, I thought that the short stories gave him the creative license to really stretch his legs and bring the stories to the screen in, in varied ways, in different ways. There is a consistency of method, but they are three very different realised segments, three self-contained, you know, their own entities, um, which is really unique and really interesting. And then importantly, it actually allows the cast of characters he's assembled of Anderson collaborators, new and old and, you know, fresh faces and familiar faces, it actually gives them their own little time to shine, like these little 35, 40-minute segments in which they can kind of swing for the fences. And and probably more than that too, it, it actually allows him to reasonably assemble such a crazy cast because they only have to commit to being into a third of a movie and they actually might only be on screen for half of that. So you can push the boat out and get just about everyone in Hollywood's in this movie. You can push the boat out and just create this crazy cast of people who might only need to be on the set for a couple of days to do the movie. And that benefits the film because that's sort of part of the fun of watching these movies now where you see, like I said, those familiar faces roll through and oh, there he is again. He's Adrian Brody's back and obviously Bill Murray's always there and yeah, Edward Norton's got his little bit and um, you know, Willem Dafoe's got his little bit and you're going, you know, Tilda Swinton's been in a number of his movies now and, and you sort of have a bit of fun watching them pop up. Um, you know, Shersha Ronan's in it, who was obviously um, in, in Grand Budapest, Tony Revolori's in it, who was, who was um, Zero in, in Grand Budapest and that's great. And then you get the fresh faces as well, like a Timothy Chalamet's obviously new to this one and how they, uh, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men's got a smaller role but oh, there's some new faces and some new people and how do they interact with the world and how do they blend in with the aesthetic and that's always so much fun. I thought the strongest part in terms of the three stories was probably the first one centering on uh, Benicio Del Toro's uh, paintings of Leia Seydoux's prison guard, um, uh, Simone. So Del Toro's character is in uh, in the prison in Ennui for a like a double murder and he, he was sort of an artist before going away and in once in the prison he sort of rediscovers his love of the art and uh, Leia Seydoux's character um, sort of becomes his muse. And 
ultimately the, the the crux of this is when at a uh, an exhibition of the inmates' art, Adrian Brody's character sees uh, was it um, Simone in cell block J, um, hobby room J or something, sees the painting and he just immediately like it just a little bit like Boy with Apple actually from Grand Budapest. He just said, thinks this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And he has to have it. And he's this art dealer and he basically liquidates his his um, previously existing art um, business and the way they do business and what they collect and what they sell and puts all of his stock in this guy and ends up creating this incredible celebrity of this man in prison who's done one painting and you know hitches his wagon to him and wants to hold this you know, big exhibition that will confirm his genius and make him lots of money. Um, and that that's probably the strongest of the three. Um, Adrian Brody to be honest, has probably catapulted himself right to the top of Anderson's collaborators. You might not never have quite get past a Bill Murray, but um, you know he's been absolutely sensational now in everything that he's turned out in for Wes Anderson, dating back to uh, Darjeeling, um, and he's he's just fantastic here again. Um, episodes two and three, <coughs> they each have their own you know particular high points, um, most of which are actually in the performances of the cast and the way in which the segments are realised. From a narrative point of view, they are both interesting. They are both um, interesting enough to watch play out. They're probably not quite as strong as the first one, for, for whatever the reason might be. Obviously, it's personal taste. Everyone will have their own um, sort of interpretation of which story works best for them and which which one entertains them the most. But I think once we get to episode three, just as a pure standalone segment within the movie, <clears throat> his direction of the that sort of 40-minute block might actually be as strong a work as Wes Anderson has ever delivered. For, for me, it's not just the culmination of kind of the movie, it's it's almost the culmination of, you know, a 25-odd-year <clears throat> journey directing movies to get to this point where all of these little things that he's been working on and skills and tricks and techniques that he's been picking up all just come together in that 40-minute block and it's... It's got some of the most beautiful, you know, he's, he's Robert Yeoman, he's cinematographer, and he have collaborated now for so long, and, and their composition is sort of their thing and their use of the frame and their use of depth of field and their use of, uh, you know, lighting and um, staging blocking, the way the, the frame is sort of established and composed is is so much a part of his style and their style and why these films are, are loved by so many people. And it really comes together in that last piece to produce something that's really quite quite beautiful and quite brilliant. Um, you know, to watch play out, <coughs> which is great. Um, I really liked actually so many of the satirical elements that play out within the episodes. You know, the film itself is obviously a satire of you know, those periodical type magazines and the episodes play out as a satire in their own funny ways. And like a good example, you've got the commentary surrounding um, Del Toro's character's piece of art. No one quite knows why they like it. No one quite knows if it's actually any good. No one knows if when he does all the other works of art, if they're any good, but they all just kind of think, oh, yeah, they are, I suppose. I like them, I think. And it's sort of that commentary on, you know, the way that art is perceived, which is funny. Um, and then there's, I can't remember which one. There's a Neil Simon-like like play, like a Bill Oxy Blues sort of like play within a story. It's quite funny that it's posited as if it was written after the fact to be like a play based on the story that appeared in this magazine. And it's sort of it's kind of perfect. Like it's this really funny thing where you're watching it and you're like, I don't know if this is meant to be a bit of a funny tongue-in-cheek spoof, but it's like exactly like how these plays are 
are constructed and they play out and it's sort of it's like uncomfortably close to the truth. I'm not sure if he's having a laugh or if he's paying loving homage to them, which is quite, which is an interesting sort of like fork in the road to exist at. I'm not sure exactly which way he was meant to be leaning, but it's it's good nonetheless. The style, the style of these films, um, you know, I've, I've said it a few times now. I love that they're a continuation. This film is a continuation of his evolution, obviously as a as a as a storyteller, as a filmmaker. You know, even the idea that the artist is narrating their work, you know, their story or their life. That's something that he used in, in Grand Budapest with um, with Zero, uh, telling the story of his life and his interactions within the hotel and meeting all these people and, and the particular sort of events surrounding what is covered in the film and how they moulded him and shaped him. Similarly here, you can sort of see how that evolves into this. Um, and, and look, he, he pulls together every technique that he's tried and perfected over the course of that career, I found myself sitting in the theatre and thinking, you know, you're picking little things out, and you're going, oh, I first used that in Darjeeling, or you tried that in The Life Aquatic. Well, that's something he's carried over from, you know, Grand Budapest. That's something that he did in, in Tenenbaums. And it's it's really funny, like, that dollhouse style that he kind of first brought to, to life in Royal Tenenbaums, then he took it to the next level in The Life Aquatic, and then he used it again in... Um, in Darjeeling and then he you know really played it out in Fantastic Mr. Fox and we saw it again in Moonrise Kingdom and then it goes to another level again in Budapest and then here it's probably stripped back taken back a tiny little bit but that is so much the flavour that he brings to all of his movies and, and is so much a unique part of you know something that started off as a bit of a quirky gimmick and a bit of a jarring visual thing and people kind of thought I don't know what is this is this a movie like this is what movies sort of look like but the way he plays with that perspective and the perception of, you know, well, visually the movie can be whatever you want it to be. We can have elements of stop motion interacting with real life. We can have a segment in this movie that is animated. It doesn't matter. Because what, what matters is the story and telling that story in, a, in an effective, fun, engaging way. And sometimes the best way to realise the sequence, if you, if, you have, if you have the freedom or the ability to play with that, you know, like, that would be out of place if we cut to a chase sequence in James Bond. It was animated. Like, it wouldn't work. But in this fantastical, silly, hyper-realistic, um, you know, strange world that Anderson creates, go, anything goes. So we can play with that and we can have fun with that. And that's what he does here, like, just perfectly. Um, I think I, I love, to the, the, the way that uh, I mentioned the old techniques and I mentioned all those techniques that he uses and... I just love that. I love, I love sitting in the cinema and you, and you kind of find yourself thinking or trying to pick, you know, how things are done. It's a mat or it's a plate or it's a miniature or the use of force perspective, the beautiful black and white, the animated segment, like I like I mentioned, whether there be traditional or, or the stop motion that he's used in the past. And that's all filmmaking. That's the genius of realising things and places that filmmaking and storytelling on the, the big screen can give us that you can't find in the real world. And then being able to pull all of those elements together, you know, in a cohesive way, very few people can do it as effectively as, as Wes Anderson. And, and part of it is the fun of using some of those old techniques. Part of it is finding a workaround to obviously realise things within a budget and within a time frame that is cost-effective and labour-effective. I mean, I'll, just as a digression, I love it when creative people, and filmmaking does this a lot, when creative people are able to find 
you know, incredible solutions or workarounds to seemingly sort of difficult or impossible or cost prohibitive problems. I mean, there's one that comes to mind immediately that um, in the J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek in, in 2009, there's this sequence where Kirk, uh, Sulu, <coughs> and then just the, the, some third guy who's just a bit of cannon fodder, he's just a jobber to die. Um, they're dropping down from the Enterprise to land on um, Nero's drill to disable the drill, which is boring into the middle of um, uh, Vulcan. Pretty clean, no worries, all right. And they drop down and they, they're falling through the sky. And it's quite an intense scene. It's very, very well done. And the way they did it, the free-falling scene you know, from the sky, the way they did the effect was, oh, how can we do it? Do we do a blue screen or how do we key him out and... All right, what do we shoot him up against? Do we rig him up? Do we rig him standing upside down? And do we shoot from below him and whatever? No, they just had him stand on a mirror in a car park. It was a beautiful, clear day. The actor stood on a mirror. They went to a tight sort of you know one shot. And then the background is exactly what it needs to be. They put some shake or some you know momentum on the camera to make it, make it look like it's falling with him to give it some energy. And you go, they've literally just gotten a mirror. And they put a mirror on the floor of a car park. And they've shot it in ninety seconds, and you go, "That's that's just brilliant. I love it. I love that stuff to death." And and if you didn't know that's how they did it, you wouldn't know that's how they did it, and it's flawless. And in the same way, the way that Anderson brings all those techniques together, those old wood, like I said, mats, and you know, keying out things and having you know plates and and using the miniatures and and stuff like that, that is just so much fun, you know. And there's so much craftsmanship, and that's ultimately what. You know, big screen movie making is about. It's about you know artists pulling together their collective experience and their collective abilities to to bring that that one vision to the screen. You know, and and in this film he, he does that so so well. It's just brilliant. Something else that has obviously come to define um, so many of Anderson's films over so many years now is is the camera work. Um, you know, uh, we've obviously covered the the techniques and the like. That's all part of it, uh, and the way the scenes and the and the film is staged. Um, I think in some instances, and this is a big, I think I mentioned Robert Yeoman, his cinematographer, who, who's been a constant collaborator of his and is as important a part of his style as anyone is. I think that in some instances, the film is actually made using the techniques of the era very deliberately. So the film is set in a particular era and we're going to bring the film to life using techniques from that era. And that's sort of, once again, to use the phrase, is the fun of it. Steven Soderbergh made a film many years ago, 2006, called The Good German. And they tried to do that. They tried that bit. That was sort of that film's gimmick. It was, it was made, uh, like I said, in 2006, and it was to be set in 1945 from memory. It was right at the close of the Second World War. And it very deliberately was made to look and feel and to play out on the screen like a film from that era. Like very, very deliberately. And it just didn't quite work because audiences now are a bit more sophisticated than that. Um, in terms of the pacing and the staging and whatnot, you, you probably can't lean so heavily into that <coughs> without turning a broader or, or a wider audience... <coughs> sorry, I'm just losing my voice. A wider audience off a little bit. And I think what Anderson does so brilliantly is his films don't really exist in a specific time. They're a bit retro and a bit niche and a bit quirky and a bit sort of kitschy. And that gives him, again, that incredible creative licence to to bring the film to life in so many different so many fun ways and and Robert Yeoman and his camera work you know the beautiful the way he he shoots everything quite square on and you've got 90 degree and 180 degree you know pans and whips and and motion is just 
it's just it's superb to be brutal. It's it's so beautifully and meticulously choreographed, and and the way that Yeoman moves the camera within it and interacts with those you know, you know meticulously designed environments that is filmmaking. That's 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 the blocking and the production design and the performance and the lighting and all those elements interacting with each other seamlessly. You know, hitting the hitting the note right, right note every single time, being in the right place every single time. You know, controlling time, you know, making sure the actor is in the right you know position, the frame is in the right position, all the detail that needs to be in the frame is in the frame, and and to watch it play out and and to sit there and think, gee, how many times do you have to do this? By this stage, they're probably pretty good at it, so they don't they don't have to have so many takes as they might have had to when they were really perfecting it, but. If you watch him on set behind the omen, this is in any behind the scenes stuff. He's just so good at what he does, and that's the reason that these shots and these scenes play out and look so good because he's just, in so many ways, one of the very, very best in the business. And and you know his work is is testament to that, just as it is. Um, his collaboration with Anderson is is what it is and is as strong as it is after so many years because they kind of go hand in glove. So, you know, what that leads to is a film in which just about every shot, like just about every shot in the film is a work of art. Some of them are a bit more basic than others, you know, simple dialogue scenes, but he very, very rarely goes A camera, B camera, you know, reverse angles or masters or whatever. There's there's so much happening in every shot. There's an economy as well as just an efficiency as well as just, I suppose, a beauty to the way everything plays out so deliberately. Um, and, And because of that, you know, the amount of information in so many of these shots, it's just, it's incredible. It's, that's like, you kind of find yourself sitting in the cinema and your eyes are just sort of scanning every corner of the frame because there's something happening. Um, and that's so rare. It's, it's, that's part of the reason you go to the cinema to see it on the big screen. So everything's in, details is just there to be seen. Absolutely awesome. Um, production design, like I mentioned, the classic Anderson dollhouse. But more than that, we've actually now kind of got to the point where he's, um, he's kind of exploring more places than he has in the past. You know, his films are becoming more sprawling and taking in more locations, more varied settings, and that grows with each passing film. You know, his ambition has sort of long since collided with his ability. You know, for a while you probably find that my ability's got to catch up to the ambition. How do I get there? I've got to keep working and keep practicing. It's like anything, but now it feels as though he's absolutely nailed on the two of them. He knows exactly what he needs to get, what he wants to get, and how to get them. Um, and because of that, we're seeing a really talented guy, a guy who's always been talented, but now one who's comfortable in realising whatever his vision is and needs to be to make the next film pop and to make the next film fresh and to make the next film something that we haven't seen but is kind of consistent with what we might want to see. Um, and that's such a, so a hard line. It's a bit of a high-wire act. But uh, the production design here is absolutely fantastic. Flowing on from that, the actual setting of the film, you know, he's, he's long had this knack, this incredible knack for creating these beautiful places that are so well realised that his characters can live and inhabit. They're so specific, that they're so timeless. And I love that the world that his film takes place in, they always feel just real enough, but they're not so vivid that you can pinpoint, like, exactly where they are. They're like a loose sketch, like a dream of... This is clearly, you go, I know this is meant to be France. Indisputably, this is France. But it's not really anywhere that's ever existed. It's, it's, it's you know, a bit of a cartoon, like I said, a bit of a dream, a bit of a, an impression. Um, 
and and back to the way that he stages the films that they they play out like a play in that way, in the way that they play with your perception of of a place. You know, New York in Tenenbaums is a really great example. It was unique and it was strange enough without drawing attention to itself, but you couldn't quite pinpoint where it was. You were like, yeah, we're in New York, but I, but where are we? Like it it looks like I think it needs to. But it becomes interesting. It doesn't become distracting. It becomes interesting because of that. You're like, where is this place? You know, we've got um, the pre-war, you know, Eastern European, uh, Eastern Europe of Grand Budapest was a bit like that as well. You know, the the kind of quasi-Mediterranean of the life aquatic again was a similar thing. Where you're like, I know exactly where the film wants me to think it's taking place, and I accept that, which is important because it can't be jarring. It can't take you out of the film. But it becomes, because of that, it becomes like really interesting. It becomes this this fascinating place that you know is a fantasy. So the production design is so important to that. Um, but the setting as it plays out in the film is really, really great. And I mentioned a few of them off the top. You know, the fun of his, his movies genuinely is the collaborators. And, and they are a cast of returning faces, largely, whether it be behind the camera or in front of the camera. We've got you know, Bill Murray's always there. Adrian Brody, as I mentioned, is great. Uh, Leia Seydoux is a more recent addition. She's been in a few of his last movies, which is brilliant. Owen Wilson, you know, they were nominated for an Oscar together back for Royal Tenenbaums for writing the script, and they, they wrote Bottle Rocket and, and Rushmore together. Um, so it's always great to see Owen Wilson turn up in his movies. Tony Revolori is back, of course. Uh, Matthew Omarik is back. Uh, he was in Grand Budapest. Um, Bob Balaban uh, we saw in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Willem Dafoe's naturally been, he's been in a number of his movies over the years. Edward Norton, um, you know, dates back to Moonrise Kingdom and has been in, in most of the movies since then. Shersha Ronan, as I mentioned, Jason Swar- uh, Schwartzman, who's, who's been a long-time collaborator as well. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Timothy Chalamet is a new addition, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, Henry Winkler's got a small role, Elizabeth Moss has got a small role. Um, I think Angelica Houston, I think she was the narrator, which is great because obviously she was... She, she's been with him, you know, Royal Tenenbaums, um, Darjeeling Limited. So it was great to sort of hear her voice, which was great. Robert Yeoman is the cinematographer. Uh, and Alexander Desplat is his, um, is his composer. I think they've worked on the last five of his movies, dating back to Darjeeling, I reckon it might. No, it would have to be Fantastic Mr. Fox. So he's done Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, Budapest, uh, Isle of Dogs and now this one. So that's always part of the fun is, is watching these people who obviously love working with him and he loves working with them all come together and, and sort of do something for the love of the art and the love of the project and um, you know share the load between one another. Um, so that's always great. Uh, in terms of the chicken shits, look, I, I really love the movie. So there's nothing there's nothing to be honest that kind of really stood out as something that I absolutely didn't like um, or even going so far as to say a disappointment to be honest the splat score is probably the closest you know it, it's just a bit ho-hum you know it's it's sort of environmental and, and largely used for ambience more than it is you know to poke and prod the audience or, or to give the film sort of any real momentum that might have been a deliberate choice uh, perhaps but you know, having worked together now for you know, this is the fifth film, as I said, in a row. They've, they've been um, side by side. Most of those other films have sort of had a fun or standout piece of music that has sort of defined that, that you know, the, the, the character of that particular film. There was a really lovely piece in 
fantastic Mr. Fox called uh, Christofferson's theme. And there was a, a really beautiful piece of music called uh, The War from the Grand Budapest Hotel again that were both very simple pieces of music but just so so effective and so so brilliant, so lovely and and they really served the, mu- the, the movie really well. Um, and this one here, I sort of, you know, those two examples left the cinema really cognizant of those those pieces and was sort of had the recall of them almost suddenly. But um, with this particular film, there, there weren't any that kind of really stayed with me, um, which again, I, I'll probably stop short of saying disappointing, but you kind of... I, I've, Desplat's a fantastic composer and, and to kind of think, to walk away and kind of go, oh, there's nothing that's kind of jumped out of me from that one. It's a bit strange. I was maybe expecting there to be a... You know, particularly given the setting and what he's produced with um, with Budapest, which is sort of a cousin you know, in style and tone and character, I thought, oh, maybe he'll have he'll have another piece of music like like the really lovely score he did for for Budapest, and mm, didn't really happen in the end. Which was, yeah, just not. Again, I'm stopped short of saying disappointing or a letdown or not good at all. The score is fine without being anything more than that. Um, so, I mean, in, in closing, ultimately, didn't the impression already I absolutely love the movie and, and I suppose I was always going to and, and in so much it's a difficult film to recommend because you'll probably need to have a familiarity with Wes Anderson's work to kind of understand maybe my point of view with this particular film um, and if you have that pre-existing understanding you'll know very much what to expect there won't be any kind of jarring stylistic choices that on a watch are sort of difficult to take in for the first time um, but look, if nothing else, I think it's a beautiful film to watch and take in and soak up and enjoy because of all those things I mentioned before, it's a really pure uh, example of filmmaking, of collaboration, of the evolution of an artistic style, you know, of an artist himself really, you know, finding his rhythm and his groove and, and bringing um, his own vision and, and sort of style to the screen. So uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, probably not more than I maybe expected to, but I really enjoyed it. It's almost a sense of relief, to be honest, when you see a film that you're really looking forward to and you do enjoy it. Sometimes you you can kind of do the film no justice when you walk in with pretty high expectations and um, you're giving the film, you know, an an uphill battle to kind of impress you because you're already expecting, Jess, it's got to be good because I like like his movies and his movies always find the mark that they need to and maybe I've changed a little bit or my perspective's changed a little bit and... Oh, I think I'm, I'm not sure if I can be surprised by him, but no, in this case, as I, said, I left the film really satisfied, having really enjoyed the movie, um, and importantly, you know, really looking forward to seeing it again and, and taking in um, all the little details I might have missed the first time around and taking in the world that he created again, which is so important when it comes to these movies. The environment is as much a character as, as anyone. So um, really highly recommended. As I said, uh, it is released on the 9th of December. Um, in Australia, uh, and it is absolutely worth checking out if you are familiar with his work or um, if you aren't already, do do sort of give yourself a bit of a, a crash course in, in what Wes Anderson's about and um, fingers crossed you enjoy it to some extent, maybe not as much as I did, um, but to some extent would be terrific. So thank you so much for your time again listening into this ramble, I think it's fair to say, um, but I hope you enjoyed it. If you do like the films of Wes Anderson or have seen his movies or 
or would like to have a chat with them, I'd love to have a chat with you. So do get in touch with us on Twitter, uh, just Sean Peter Budge, all one word, or uh, the weekly watch list. Uh, we've obviously got an account there. Um, and we look forward to obviously having your ears and your attention um, when we're able to get back together and, and record the next episode of that. So thanks so much for tuning in. I will hope to catch you again next time.